and turn to Daniel chapter 6. Whenever we end a series, we ended a series a few weeks ago on the resurrection uh, and and what what does the resurrection mean? Why is the resurrection so important to our faith? Um, Before we we start a new series, I I like to uh, pause and do some one-offs and and every once in a while, I like to do a story that we all know. We grew up hearing and whatnot, uh, but maybe we, when you, we don't preach through it much, right? I've I've never preached on this text before. In 20 years of youth and, and senior pastor ministry, never never preached on it, really taught on it much. That, of course, is Daniel in the lion's den. We all know it. We all know it well. Uh, if you don't know the story, uh, I, I recommend to you the Veggie Tales uh, version of Daniel Lions Den. I took the song out, Mark. I'm sorry. Sorry. We, you and I, we've had it in our head all week. Uh, so, uh, page 786 of your pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, take that pew Bible home with you. We'll even get you another nice Bible to go with it. If you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's Word. I'm not going to read the whole chapter for sake of time, but I do want to read the first few verses so uh, we can get the ball rolling. And again, I am relying on some of your familiarity with the story. Daniel chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Uh, the writer writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was, was in him. And the king planned to set over him the whole kingdom. And the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to his kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, every time we gather, we ask for the same thing. You would open our hearts, we would receive your word, our mind that we would understand it, our eyes that we would see your glory and your kingdom, our ears that we would hear and heed your word, our mouth that we would speak the hope of the gospel to ourselves, to one another, and to this lost and dying world in love. Will you open our hands and our feet that we would become more like Jesus, that your kingdom come, your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. May be seated. One of the most important questions of any story, whether you're reading a story like this one or watching a movie or a television show or something, is, is who is the main character? A good writer uh, may make the main character very evident, may even make uh, the, the title of the book the character's name. Or a good writer may, may make it more ambiguous. And, and by making it more ambiguous, by highlighting a series of characters like the Avengers or something like that, uh, you, you, you're drawn into the story through different perspectives. And so the question that sticks out to me when I read this text is, who is the main character? Now, I know what you're saying, preacher. We already know who the main character is. It's called Daniel and the lion's den. Clearly, it's about Daniel. Well, as we go through it, I want you to ask yourself, self, is Daniel really where the camera is zooming in on? Is Daniel the main character or is he a supporting character? Who does the writer want us to see on every line, every page, every verse? Well, I won't be the first one to to note about the book of Daniel, since we're only looking at one passage, it would be helpful to take a, a bit of a step back. In the book of Daniel, and for the modern American reader, is a helpful model for us about what it's like to live as a sojourner who walks by faith. 
Daniel is in a uh, pagan Gentile nation. He was one of those taken from Israel uh, into Babylon. And so he is away from the temple, which was destroyed. He was away from the covenantal land. And he is in many ways isolated from uh, his own people outside of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. From what we can tell, doesn't have a lot of other uh, faith-focused Jews around him. Yet he models for us how to navigate these waters of living as a sojourner in a pagan society. If only I could think of a good, a good application for you and me living in 21st century America. But we do see this throughout Daniel. For example, in, in Daniel chapter 1, he and his friends refused to surrender their obedience to the demands of the culture. In Daniel chapter 3, his three friends, Rakshak and Bendy, as VeggieTales calls them, they refused to surrender their worship in obedience uh, to uh, the false idol of the state. And here what we see is Daniel once again refuses to surrender his devotion by order of the state. What we read here, verses 1 through 5, I have a few words here in this chapter that stick out to me. Maybe you come up with different words. A few words that stick out to me. Verses 1 through 5, the word that sticks out to me is integrity. Now, Darius is the king over the Medo-Persians. Now, most of Daniel takes place in the Babylonian captivity, but in chapter 5 is the writing on the wall that creepy thing that will give you nightmares. And now the Medo-Persians have taken over. King Darius, he's, he's the top dog. And Darius immediately notices what the Babylonians notice. Daniel knows the stuff. He is competent. He's a hard worker. He is someone you want in power. Now, one of the things you'll find in, in positions of influence and power is that everyone below you hopes you fail. Everyone below you hopes you fail because they want your job. It comes with better health benefits. I'm sure that's the motivation. But they all want that job. Now, we know this, right? If you ever follow sports, talk to a coach at a pretty high level, um, a college, professional, semi-professional, international, whatever it is, they'll tell you uh, that getting this job was virtually impossible. You know how many hoops I had to go through? You know how many jobs I had to have before that? Now, Now, I think I've proven that I deserve this next job. But there are a thousand people who think the same thing as me, right? Moving up in the, into the coach in the sports world is difficult. Well, what about politics? It's no different. When I, uh, uh, shortly after I became the state minister over at the Capitol, I had a, uh, uh, someone who's become a friend pull me aside and we were having lunch or something. And they said, one of the things you're going to have to learn the hard way here. So let me just save you a lot of heartache. Every person here thinks that they would make a better governor. And they're just trying to figure out when they're going to run, right? I think there's some real wisdom in that, right? Because you look at the governor, you think, hey, he's all right. I'd do better, right? You know, you know, chances are you turn on the telly, right? You see that senator, that, that politician, whatever it was, you think, sharp guy. I think I could do better, right? I watched a true crime documentary a few years ago, and it had lawyers on it. And I watched them. I thought, well, I could do better than that. I could at least put a sentence together. You know, don't know anything about the law, but I can at least, you know, plead better for my client's case. You know, well, what about ministry? This is a problem in ministry. Every person who feels called in the ministry, many of them who have no business being in ministry, frankly, but many believe uh, that every pastor often believe that they should be the next mega church pastor with a book deal and should probably have a study Bible with their name on the fronts. That is a problem we have among ministers. No doubt about it. 
But what we see with, with these satraps, these men who want Daniel's job is jealousy. It's fueled by envy. And the Bible tells us that envy is a cursed thing. In Proverbs 14, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh. Envy rots the bones. I mean, what are you going to do with that? That's just true. That's just true. Meet someone whose heart is corroded with the rust of envy, and you will have someone who their soul is rotten to the core. They can't understand grace or thanksgiving or joy. They're miserable people. And here you have miserable people thinking that they deserve uh, what Daniel has. Envy will fuel jealousy and bitterness, entitlement, anger. It will corrupt justice. And envy always bypasses what is right in favor of what we perceive to be fair. And let me tell you something about fairness. Is that fairness always favors the one crying for it. Fairness is fueled by pride. I want what you have. And what these satraps want is what Daniel has. Not just because they think he's unqualified for it, but for the simple fact they want it. They think it's only fair. They are entitled to it. After all, he's a Jew. We're Babylonian. We're Persian. Whatever it might be. Now, the problem with accusing Daniel of corruption is that is a fool's errand. I heard a, a commentator talk about a certain politician that... Uh, it was a fool's errand for his opponents to find skeletons in the closet. He goes on to say, I don't even think this guy has a closet, right? That's Daniel, right? He probably doesn't even have a closet to look for uh, such skeletons. However, he is a man of faith. And they zero in on that, saying that if we can turn his faith and make him an enemy of the state, we can tear him down. This is an act of discrimination. They know his faith is what fuels his competency. They also know it makes him vulnerable. What makes him a good worker is that he prioritizes his faith above his business. Remember that. This all demonstrates that Daniel was a man of integrity. He didn't play the games of greed or entitlement or accusation. He worked hard. He was competent. He was a man of integrity. And Daniel's integrity in the end mattered more to him than his wealth, his position, or his career. Integrity sticks out to me. Faithful is another word that sticks out to me when I read this. Verses 6 to 15. The plan is quite simple. They are going to get the king to pass a law that for 30 days you, you, you can't pray to any other being, right? That, that for 30 days, it's we'll call it Independence Month, right? You're going to venerate. You're going to celebrate. It's all going to be about the king. All we ask is, 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 is for a king's month, right? We, we, we like turning things in, into a whole month of celebration, it seems like. And, and so notice this is all in the name of patriotism. It's all in the name of justice, loyalty. You know, these buzzwords. One of the things I've noticed in following politics is if you want to get people to support a bill you want passed, don't be honest about what the bill is actually about. <laughs> Give it a, a, a name that if people don't support your bill, they're a terrible human being. Let me give you a few examples. I'm not making political points. These are just three I found that I thought would be fun, right? In 2001, following the 9-11 attacks, the major bill that came into law was known as the Patriot Act. Now, you may like it. You may not like it. It's not my point. But if you did not support the Patriot Act, that meant what? You're not patriotic. You're supporting the terrorist, right? To quote, to quote a W, right? Terrorist. 
Or how about the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act? You know what that one is? Better known as Obamacare. But it was called the, page, uh, the Patient pa- Protection and Affordable Care Act. Still is called that. If, if you call up trying to figure out what's going on with my insurance, they're going to say, oh, you're talking about the hold on, Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. They're not going to call it Obamacare. Although President Obama, when he was asked by his detractors, well, I like the name. I won't do my impression. Uh, I like the name because it means I care, right? This is the way it works. And if you, if you didn't support it, that meant you didn't want to protect patients and make health care affordable. You're a terrible human being. Or consider the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. This is the 2009 stimulus, also passed by President Obama when he first came into office. And, and if you didn't support it, that meant you didn't want to reinvest in America. What, you favor the Chinese now, right? It, it meant that you didn't want America to recover, right? right? Don't look at the bill, look at the name, right? And you got something like that going on here. What these satraps are doing is, hey, King, look, we just want the whole nation, right? You just took over all of Babylon. We just want the whole nation just for 30 days, just for 30 days. I just want flags on, on their cars, right? I, 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 just, I just want them to post certain things on their Instagram just for 30 days, 30 days. Every company is going to have certain colors they're going to put up just so that we all know for 30 days you are a king. Now, I ain't turning that down, would you? I mean, it's an appeal to the king's ego. Like Nebuchadnezzar before him, he's a man of great ego, as all ancient kings and modern kings, not to mention normal people, have. And so they appeal to that. So he thinks he's doing something good for the unity of the nation. Is actually going to cause quite a rift in his own kingdom. Now, Daniel's response, starting in verse 10, is striking to the American. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, it's the law of the Medes and Persians, you can't go back on it. He went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. All those words are important. His response was not to call a lawyer. It was the fall to his knees. Now, why is he facing Jerusalem? Because his hope is not in Persia. His hope is not in the city of Babylon. His hope is in Jerusalem, the land of his people, the covenantal promised land of God. So, so he opens that window right towards Jerusalem and he prays. And it is a prayer of thanksgiving. Why? Because every day he got up three times a day and he looked towards Jerusalem and thanksgiving, God, you will soon take us back. You are the God who meets us even in Babylon. You are the God who is with us even in our own captivity. I have reason to be thankful. It's the same thing. This is a man of great faithfulness. He did then as he had done before. And I love this idea that the satraps and the other authorities were um, uh, voyeurs peeking in his window. Is it going to happen? Is it happening? Get out your phone, right? We, we got to get this on video, right? He's violated it. He didn't put up the flag. Well, before long, verses 14 and 15, the king realizes he's, he's been duped. He does what he, he can, but he realizes there's no going back. In fact, the, the ESV uses the word distressed. He becomes distressed about the situation and claims his hands are tired. Tied, rather. But it's worth pausing to put ourselves in Daniel's shoes. Is your faith more valuable to you than your financial security? Is your faith more valuable to you than your reputation, your career, your legacy, your comforts? Look, if, a, if revival will come to America, and I pray that it does, and let us all pray three times a day, with the windows open or closed, 
But revival comes to America. It will come when American evangelicals risk their entitlements to ease and comforts. We've got to surrender these. A third word, we've looked at integrity, we've looked at faith. Well, here's a third word I think worth exploring. That is courage. The trap has been set, starting in verse 16. A trial has been held, though no trial is really mentioned. And now Daniel is about to be executed. What is striking about this scene, uh, in verse, starting in verse 16, is that Daniel is, takes a, a, a step back, not really part of the story. He says, hey, you're going to be executed. And, and, and it is Darius who is panicked. Not Daniel. Go down to verse uh, 16. The king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the uh, den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you, were, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own uh, signet and, uh, uh, and the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. And the king went to his place, spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and uh, no and his sleep fled from him. Notice here, we almost get the feeling, right? Daniel is sleeping better than the king. And Daniel went to a zoo you don't want to go to. Right? The king is in his fancy bedchamber with all everything a king could ever want or need to help him to sleep. He can't sleep. It's interesting, isn't it? Who's the main character of the story? What would we get here? Daniel. Daniel prayed and he got thrown in the lion's den. That's all we get really from Daniel. Here, here, it's about the satraps and, and the trap they're going to set against Daniel. Now it's about the king and his distress and panic over, over Daniel. And, and all we have here is Daniel just goes to the lion's den. He just goes to it. But there is hope that his God, whom you continually serve, would protect him. It's an interesting language, isn't it? It's not like Daniel found Jesus when he thought he was going to die. Daniel came, was a man of faith. When he thought he was going to live, he consistently lived by faith. Can I just add here, you and I, we won't find courage by accident. Courage is cultivated like every good quality. And the secret to it is a lifetime of development. You know, athletes who overcome obstacles and shine in the brightest light do so because they have dedicated their life to a sports. You're not going to wait until the final 30 seconds of overtime to suddenly discover how to shoot a, a three-pointer. You might get lucky one time. But when that shot is taken and it goes in, 99% of the time it's because someone has dedicated their life to that sport. And in that moment, the skills necessary are there. Men who hold fast to their integrity when the heat is on do so because they have cultivated integrity. Courage comes from a lifetime of faith. You will not be courageous in moments of severe trial if you fail to persevere in lesser moments. I want you to survey your life in that regard. When tragedy strikes, do you falter? When death stings, does grief rob you of your hope? When ridiculed, threatened, or opposed, do you censor yourself? Are you a believer of courage? Let's look at one more word here. That is praise. 
Verses 25 to 28, this is striking. As you know, Daniel survives. Uh, spoiler alert, keep reading on your own time. He survives. You've seen the Veggie Tales. You know what happens. Verse 25, King Darius wrote to all the people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall uh, be uh, to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who saves Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. We know from archaeology and history that Darius is followed by Cyrus who sends everyone home. The story of Nehemiah. Nevertheless, what it is that we, we see here is a, a strange a change in things, right? The story opens up with a proclamation that everyone should venerate the king. It concludes with a different proclamation. Everyone should venerate the God of Daniel. I mean, what, what a story, right? You start here, you end here. That's, that's, a, that's a good story. But notice his song uh, this, that begins there in verse 26 with the Lord lives. And it's interesting that the king would begin here, but it makes sense, right? At the heart of the story is death. He thought when he, when he removed the stone away, he would be a witness to death. What he discovered was life. As such, he rules in a kingdom that... Uh, that God rules in a kingdom that will never end. He will conquer forever. Not even mighty Persia can, can conquer it. But so we see in verse 26 that Yahweh the Lord lives. In verse 27, we see that Yahweh the Lord redeems, right? You see it there. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and waters in heavens and earth. You could apply that to the story of Daniel. You could apply it to the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You could apply it to the story of the Exodus, there's a thousand stories in the Bible, right? This is the story of the Bible, how it is that God comes to rescue. Not that man rescues himself, but rather that God comes down to rescue man. And Daniel's just one of many stories like that. Rightly so, that Darius points out that the God who lives is the God who rescues. The God from eternity, the living God, is the God who liberates, he redeems. So in the end, Darius is right to respond to the grace of God with the worship and praise of God. This is why we we're here, right? We gather because God has been gracious to us. How can we not sing of his great praise? We do this every Sunday and every day of the week for our identity is the one who rescued us from death. Well, I'm afraid as, 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 as we, we finish the story, we've, we've made a serious mistake. One of the easy things to do with a story like this, particularly in modern America, it's easy to moralize a text. And nothing we've said is wrong. I just don't think that we've, we've really hit the nail on the head. It's easy to look at a story and say, can I pull out a few nuggets I can apply to my life? There's some truth to that. But if that is all that we do, I think we've missed the, mo the main point of the text. Remember, the question we began with is, is who's the main character? When, when the camera zooms in, who is the camera zooming in on? Is it Daniel? He gets all the glory in, in, in our paintings and our kids' stories and Sunday school classes, of course. But you read the story, he's barely in it. He does hardly any talking. He's seen praying. That's about it. He justifies himself before the king after the, the, you know, he, he's found to be survived. Beyond that, he says virtually nothing. Is it King Darius? He certainly has a, a, a significant scene in that he, he pleads that, that, that Daniel will be okay and he'll survive. He, he marvels that Daniel survives and, and, and he, he writes this psalm at the end. Certainly he's an important character. But, but what about the satraps who, who are seen throughout it? After all, they begin the story with, with their cunning attempts against Daniel. They end the story by being thrown into the, Daniel, into the lion's den themselves. 
Who's the main character of this story? You could, you could argue get any of them. But I think we're missing someone here. We're missing here. Because when we moralize this text, the problem becomes that we think always we're the hero of the story. I'm Daniel. And it's easy for me to stand up here and say, don't you want to be like Daniel too? Don't you want to pray like Daniel? Don't you want to be courageous like Daniel? Don't you want to be a good boy and girl like Daniel? The problem is, is it doesn't take long for us to realize we'll never be like Daniel. Do you pray enough? No. Are you courageous enough? Is your integrity that high? No. Let's be honest. The king sings a song that would embarrass most evangelicals on a Sunday morning. Because we don't sing with a heart like that. When you moralize the text, what you end up doing is condemning yourself. The main character of the story is not you. It's not Daniel. It's not Darius. It's not the satraps. It's Jesus, if you would look. He's right there in the text, so obvious for us to see. In fact, one of the things that we could do is we could see a connection between Daniel and the lion's den. And once you see this, you'll never unsee it. The story, this story of the lion's den mirrors, almost perfectly parallels the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. Can I just show it to you really quick? First of all, both Daniel and uh, Jesus were sons of Judah who were conspired against. Daniel has the satraps. Jesus has the Sanhedrin. Secondly, both Daniel and Jesus were declared blameless by their enemies. Remember, the satraps here says, we can't get him because he's corrupt. We've got to go after his faith. You remember that over and over again in the Gospels, they go out of the way to prove that Jesus is innocent. This would include Pilate, Pilate's wife, Judas, the thief on the cross, and the centurion all proclaim that Jesus is innocent. Consider, for example, Luke 23, 22. A third time, Pilate said, why, what evil has this man done? And they shout all the more. They shout all the more, crucify him. In fact, Pilate will go out of his way to, 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 to find ways around it. In fact, that's, that's the third point we have. In both Daniel and Jesus, both the governing authority unsuccessfully tried to intervene. Darius comes, he says, I've been duped. We've got to do something about this. Get the best liars. I mean, lawyers on it, stat. And they say, there's nothing you can do. Pilate comes and he says, I'm being duped. We've we, we got to figure out something. They say, there's nothing you can do. Remember that Pilate tries to take Jesus to Herod. Pilate tries to pass him off for Barabbas. Pilate tries to have him flogged and released. None of it works. Yet Jesus will be crucified. It's the same story in both, both accounts. Fourthly, both Daniel and Jesus prayed trust in the living God. Daniel's response to the passing of the law wasn't to change who he was, but to double down on the hope he has in God. So to Jesus, on the eve of his crucifixion, all alone for the, for the, uh, the disciples who were asleep, what is it he prays? Ultimately, God, let your will be done, not mine. Both turned to prayer in the time. Of testing. Fifthly, both were surrounded by beasts and lions. We don't have time to go in this in great detail, so let me just whet your appetite on this. You can do more in your own time. Daniel, of course, was cast in a den of, in a den of lions and surrounded by beasts. Jesus would later be surrounded by beasts and attacked by lions. I know you're saying to yourself, self, um, where are there lions in the New Testament? Well, not in the New Testament. In the Messianic prophecy written by David about the suffering Messiah, we read this, Psalm uh, 22, I didn't put it up, or Psalm 22, 21, save me from the mouth of the lion. 
That is the psalm where we get mention of, of his, his bones are out of joint but not broken. And they give me something bitter to drink. It's a messianic psalm that is as if David was there at the foot of the cross when he writes it. It's interesting, isn't it? The mouth of the lion at the, there at the cross. It's interesting. It's almost like God knows what he's doing. He's writing the Bible. Sixthly, both were buried and covered with a stone. I wonder if you caught it when I mentioned the stone earlier. Both men were buried. And a stone was over them. You read this text again, the stone, it's the stone, it's the stone. Put a stone over there so Daniel can't escape. Remove the stone so I can see if he's alive. Jesus, the same thing. Buried in a borrowed tomb. A stone was rolled over. Why? To keep people from stealing the body. Seventhly, is that a word? Seventh. Both Daniel and Jesus were found alive in the morning. Darius rushes to the tomb, the den, if you will. He says, let it be that he is alive. An impossibility, he would say. What a surprise he found when the, when the stone was removed. There he was. So too the women at first lights. Sabbath was over. Anointing oil ready to go. Rushing to the tomb only to find stone removed. Jesus was alive. Or, eighthly, both, I did put it up there, eighthly, both Daniel and Jesus promise redemption. For Daniel, his story becomes a narrative of hope to the exiles of Israel. Much as as Daniel was redeemed from the den, so too Israel will be redeemed by God from the Persians and the Babylonians. Before that, the Assyrians and the Philistines and everyone else. Daniel becomes a parable, if you will. Though real in history, a parable. that What God does for Daniel, he will do for Israel. So, so no wonder then they sing this living God is the God who rescues and delivers. It's the hope of redemption. Jesus comes and he promises the same thing. He comes not to redeem a limited ethnic group, but to anyone who would come to him. Anyone who would come to the empty tomb. He is the true redeemer of the narrative. You see that the main person in the text is Jesus. In fact, ninthly, notice this, Daniel's hope in the den was Jesus. It was Jesus. Go back to verse 22. We skipped it earlier on purpose. Verse 22, uh, it says, Then Daniel said to the king, right? Daniel's trying to explain, hey, look, I didn't do nothing wrong. You tried to kill me anyways. I'm going to call my lawyer. Verse 21, he says, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. They have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also for you, O God, I have done no harm. Now, who is that weirdo? My angel, or his angel, rather. Who, who is that? Well, the text doesn't say. It doesn't say there at all. We're left to, to conjure who it is. Let's make up a few names, right? Cecil and, and uh, I, I don't know, who, whoever else. Um, um, I've got a cartoon in my head, and I can't think of uh, their names. It would have been funny. The Moose. Who is the Moose's? Bullwinkle, that's it. We'll name the angel Bullwinkle, if you will, right? Don't worry about where my mind goes, right? A Bullwinkle, we'll name the angel Bullwinkle. It could be anyone you want it to be. But what if we do know who this angel was? In fact, we could go back to chapter 3, verse 28. I got it up on the screen. You might as well look at it for yourself. Chapter 3, verse 28. This is the story of Rakshak and Benny, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember that they, they, they go into the fire, right? And you remember uh, what it is that, that, that they discover. They discover a fourth person. Verse 25 of chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar speaks. 
Uh, go back to verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? The answer said to the king, Yes, true, O king. Verse 25. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Remember, he's a polytheist. He's going to use the, the, the plural there. He's like the son of God. Now, that language will be used later. Daniel the prophet speak of the son of man and son of God. But here's the sons of the gods. Now, go down to verse 28. It says, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servant. You see the language there? His angel. You come back to chapter 6, what do we find? His angel is back there. Who is this angel? Well, we see it is the angel of the Lord, the sons of the God. And Christians have almost universally, consistently held to that this is the pre-incarnate Jesus. Daniel's hope in the den was not that the lawyers would figure something out. The king would change his mind. His satraps would realize what they were doing was wrong. No, his hope was in Jesus. Because it is only Jesus who can arrest life from death. That is the hope of the gospel. But what sets Jesus apart from Daniel is that Jesus entered the death, uh, the furnace of death to rescue Daniel's friends. In chapter 6, we see that Jesus enters the den of death to rescue Daniel. And in the Gospels' accounts, we see that Jesus entered the tomb of death to rescue you and me. Daniel offered his life. Jesus gave his life. Daniel was spared. Jesus was sacrificed. Jesus, therefore, is the true and better Daniel. So you see the problem with moralism. If you won't measure up to Daniel, you won't measure up to Jesus. But that's the good news of the gospel. Christ enters into our brokenness. He enters into our world of sin. He enters into the den of death and rescues us by taking it upon himself. That's the main point of the story. Yes, we can come to this text and see hope for living in dark times. That's fine. Let us do so. Let us live with integrity and faithfulness and courage and praise. But more than that, let us see that Christ clothes us in his righteousness. And in so doing, we will be free to walk in integrity. Let us see that if we will abide in the resurrected Christ... We can live with great faithfulness. Let us see that if we will surrender to Christ who has conquered death, we will never lack courage. And let us see that if we will worship our Redeemer, you will never lack reason to praise. The camera zooms in on Christ, who was there all along. But what about you? What about you? If you're a Daniel, you need Jesus. If you're a Darius, you need Jesus. You need Satrap, you need Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I ask you to be so kind as to show us Jesus.